Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The abuse of opioids in the United States has unleashed an epidemic of addiction and overdose since the 1990s, leaving hundreds of thousands of Americans dead. Are these deaths the result of a global economy that has enriched elites while leaving many behind? Can opioid addiction be blamed on stagnation and economic insecurity, or even capitalism itself? Today, I'm joined by Ed Glazer to discuss these questions and more. Ed is the chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University and co-author with fellow Harvard economist David Cutler of the paper, When Innovation Goes Wrong, Technological Regress and the Opioid Epidemic. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, the, uh, the listeners famously love when I read so I always like to read as much as possible during the podcast. So I'm going to start off by reading a few uh, statistics from the start of your paper with David Cutler, When Innovation Goes Wrong, Technological Regress, and the Opioid Epidemic. Uh, so a few uh, stats from the start. The five-fold increase in the death rate from opioid drugs between 2000 and 2017 is an American health crisis rivaling even the COVID-19 pandemic. Nearly 850,000 people died from opioid overdoses between 1999 and 2019. And in 2019, more people died from opioids than from motor vehicle accidents or breast cancer. Uh, the increase in drug overdose deaths is the dominant reason for the decline in U.S. life expectancy between 2014 and 2017. Uh, the crisis also exacerbated the link between lifespan and education. The, op the opioid death rate is three times higher for high school graduates that for college graduates, opioid deaths rose during the COVID pandemic, despite the sharp reductions in mobility. So a very serious health crisis. What is the dominant narrative as to the cause of that crisis? That a whole host of issues, economic insecurity, the China, the China trade shock, income stagnation, these kind of sort of social stressors unleashed a rising tide of despair, and that led to opioid addiction. That seems to me to be the dominant narrative. Am I right? What are you saying that's different? So I think that is that is the dominant narrative, which in some sense emphasizes America's economic travails. It, it then leads to a often a progressive uh, push towards um, government policies that would reinvigorate declining areas where opioids have been particularly uh, problematic. Um, and it has some truth on it, but we don't think it's the dominant truth at all. So you focus on, I guess we just said, uh, a kind of a demand side explanation. Yours, I so would, would you call it a supply side explanation? We, that's exactly right. So we, we emphasize we're economists, you know, we, it all comes back to Alfred Marshall's twin scissors and supply and demand. So our view is that opioids became more prevalent either because there was an increased demand for opioids or there was an increase in supply. So that view says there was always demand for taking opioids. Uh, lots of people like taking this drug. Um, and if there's an innovation in opioids, particularly one which is wrapped together with a tale of greater safety, 
then it was that supply shock that led to the unfolding of the opioid crisis. Sort of all great innovations are a combination of, of, of something new, perhaps technologically combined with marketing. People have to understand what this innovation is. Even I remember the when the uh, when the iPad came out, people were like, well, we don't, what are people going to use this thing for? It seems to have a dumb name and do we even need this iPad? And then, you know, Apple sold a, gaj- a gajillion of them. And that's kind of a case of opioids too. Opioids too. It was sort of an innovation, uh, a medical innovation combined with marketing. Am I correct? That's certainly how we see it combined with regulatory laxness. And let's not forget, you know, there are parts of the government that actually subsidize this as well. So it's, you know, the various forms of public health insurance also pay for pay for opioids. So um, there's a there's a public role in it as well, both on the regulatory side and on the payment side. So what if you could just sort of just track us through a bit of sort of the history? Absolutely. So um, let's let's go back to the long history. Right. So the long history is um, there are Sumerian references to the joy plant. Uh, civilizations from Greece to Egypt to Persia to India, right, all knew about the upside of the the, the liquid that came from the poppies um, and the possible risk of overdoses. Uh, you know, Hippocrates, the, the Greek who gave us the Hippocratic Oath, frequently mentions the poppy and its remedies. Um, and so opium became a you know, major part of the world and something which we knew to be, you know, to be careful about, right? Um now, over time, uh, what happened was we have these waves of innovation where someone comes along. So, for example, Thomas Seidenham combines opium with alcohol and produces laudanum in 1676, right, which is supposed to be a wonder drug that will eliminate all forms of pain. Uh, and, of course, 25 years later, uh, you have doctors like John Jones who are writing about how the long-term use of uh, this drug creates an inability or listlessness to do anything except it be while the opium operates, but that quitting opium use could lead to intolerable anxieties and even a miserable death. Then in, in the early 19th century, Friedrich Surturner uh, separated morphine from opium. He thought he had made it safe, right? Uh, he himself would become an addict. Um, Merck pioneered the drug commercially in the 19th century. And so morphine became widespread, particularly during the Civil War, but it certainly wasn't a safer alternative to uh, opium. And, you know, it usually takes a generation for this to be figured out. Uh, It became a little bit easier to figure out what was wrong with heroin, which was, of course, the wonder drug at the end of the 19th century. So this was Felix Hoffman at Bayer, who apparently invented both aspirin and heroin within the same 14-day period. How's that for like an amazingly fertile time period? Right. So he creates two things. And there heroin is, is you know, uh, no risk of addiction. Don't worry about it. Great to give for to children for uh, for coughs. Um, and of course, it was all wrong. Once again, opioids proved to be enormously addictive and deadly for most of the 20th century in the U.S. Opioids have been basically off the table. Doctors, consumers, the government have been very, very reticent about significant amounts of opioids delivered to anyone who's not under very supervised hospital conditions, right? Um, so there's there's codeine, which stays around in cough suppressants, but basically everything else, opiates plummets. 
Then all of a sudden, starting in the 70s, two things come together, together which give us this uh, supply side uh, revolution. One of them is the, the pain movement. And so what happens is that there are doctors, there are um, you know, people in hospices who believe that uh, we've been too tough on painkillers. And, you know, you've got to have some sympathy with them. If, if right. you were, you know, I hope when I'm suffering from late stage cancer and, you know, I'm in a great deal of pain, I, I hope they're liberal in giving me uh, opiates. I mean, I, if death looms, you might as well reduce the, reduce the pain. At the same time, you'll have Purdue Pharma, which comes up with their time release uh, system for delivering, uh, delivering various drugs. And so... This starts with uh, a morphine time release dose, uh, and then it moves on to uh, you know the, the 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 drug that becomes um, you know particularly associated with this, which is OxyContin. Okay, so OxyContin has um, a couple of things going for it relative to uh, earlier opioids. One of which is the time release system, which they can plausibly claim is going to reduce the risk of, of addiction by reducing the amount of opioid that's in your system. The sort of the key drawback, which has sort of confounded doctors and scientists for hundreds of years, they found a way around it. That's right, because they were supposedly going to do it in a way that is, is a highly limited way, so you never got too much of the stuff into your system. That was the that was the, the, the real hope. And, but they did that first with morphine, right? And um, the, the time release morphine never sold because Americans are too scared of morphine. Doctors are going to be too scared about it. Instead, they, they turned to a drug that had been very popular among the, uh, the, the, the Nazi hierarchy, uh, which was consequently much, much rarer in the U.S., which is, which is the basis of OxyContin. And so that drug, both a sort of unusual opioid or one that was less common in uh, the U.S., so the, the codone uh, side. And then the um, by mixing oxycodone with the MS, you got MS content. So um, those those combinations are uh, the two things that, that made it seem safe. And so they got it through the FDA. Uh, they got it through doctors. And all of a sudden, it became a blockbuster drug. Now, it didn't hurt that Purdue is just an amazing marketing machine, right? The Sackler family is just unbelievably good at figuring out how to sell uh, sell drugs. Uh, and, you know, their whole machine went into overdrive. They had this you know, wonderful letter to the New England Journal, which claimed that very few people were getting addicted to uh, to drugs, right? Among 11,882 patients who received at least one narcotic preparation, there were only four cases of reasonably well-documented addiction in patients who had no history of addiction, like Porter and Jick, 1980. Um, this finding was among, among inpatients, were very tightly controlled, but it was taken to be general. And so this wave of advertising created a huge sea change in the, in the way that we prescribed opioids. And so that was the supply shock. And pretty much everything else follows the same path that we saw earlier for morphine or for heroin, which is you know, you get this wonder drug that's supposed to be safe. People love it, right? Because they, you know, it, it feels really good. It's a really powerful, effective drug. Um, they they use it. And then pretty quickly, people start finding out that it's addictive as heck. 
Uh, and the people who are addicted figure out how to get around the time release. They crush it to get it earlier. Um, there's a there's a losing battle. It's fought in t- trying to restrict this. And then, of course, once you ratchet back the legal supply of the drug, uh, the illegal drug markets um, take over. And of course, entrepreneurship. Right. Right. The entrepreneurs of drugs, right, which is which is, you know, what we want from humanity. We want entrepreneurs, but not all entrepreneurs are, are actually delivering value for society as a whole, even if individual uh, users are, are quite grateful to them. So this is first the black tar uh, heroin dealers uh, supplying it out of Mexico. Very uh, modern, effective supply mechanism. Uh, you know, you, you just call the, the drug dealer brings it right to you. Only small people in the organization have drugs. So it's very hard to arrest the hires up. Um, and then uh, that's followed. And, you know, it's a story that we're well aware of America, you know, robust industrial production in the Far East, uh, killing off uh, domestic production. But fentanyl can be produced in East Asian factories, shipped via the U.S. mail because it's so bloody powerful. And, um, you know, it's, it requires such small amounts. And fentanyl has really been the illegal uh, opioid of choice more recently. And it's, it's caused... Incidentally, it's caused, it's caused significant economic problems for the uh, Mexican uh, heroin gangs. Um, so, and fentanyl is part of the reason why this is so deadly. Because it's so powerful, which makes it incredibly easy to evade um, uh, any force, form of enforcement, it's also incredibly uh, likely to lead to, to overdoses. So uh, that's, that's how we think we got here. We can talk about the empirical evidence, but that's the basic narrative that we tell. It's a narrative of of economics. We're talking about innovation, supply, demand, entrepreneurship, all the things uh, that you know. I, I touch on a lot during this podcast, which produce, I think, a lot of obvious benefits for humanity. But this is a case where it is not produced uh, a benefit uh, for humanity. And is that because we've seen this is a failure of the government part of the equation, a, fa- a failure of government to to regulate is that is that where this really comes down to? I think it's uh, it's a failure to regulate or even a failure to get the information right at all. So if we think about the innovation, um, the the drug side was really pretty limited uh, in terms of the innovation. Right, this is an old drug. The only real innovation is the time release uh, system which is a pretty mild innovation, right? I mean, presumably you could have just taken smaller pills at, at some degree of, of greater regularity. Um, so it, it's a very minor thing. What the main things the entrepreneurs figured out how to do was to convince doctors and regulators that this was safe, right? Which it, it was basically, you know, even if the regulators can maybe ex post be excused for the, the confusion of this, um, it was clearly a lie, right? So, um, the, um, the the main innovation served mainly to confuse regulators and confuse doctors into thinking that you had a safe opioid. So uh, I think that's the main reason why this innovation wasn't you know uh, wasn't particularly helpful is that it wasn't a, a sort of really new product that we'd never seen before. It wasn't an iPad, right? We went through this before with morphine. We went through this before with heroin, right? We should realize that every time someone comes up with a new uh, opioid and says this time it's safe. We should be incredibly wary of that. If you had, I'm trying to think that if you had a more libertarian view than uh, I do on this, I, I, I normally skew strongly towards the the liberty, um, the liberty lives side of things. But I'm I'm quite comfortable with the idea of strongly regulating opioids. But even if you did, 
have that view, then in this case, the, the innovation would still be negative because it served to confuse consumers about the product. Right. It was mislabeled. You, you walked us through a, a, a fantastic, in just a few minutes, sort of history uh, of opioids. What does the history of previous crises say about the future of this ongoing crisis in the United States? The general pattern is very few of the seriously addicted people get off it. Um, and you know, it's certainly worthwhile having a national conversation about what to do with that population. Um, and there's certainly a reasonable view that they would be better getting some legal alternative to fentanyl. So to, to throw it to throw aside to my, my libertarian side, I think I think that population is very unlikely to to you know have the large majority of them give up on uh, opioids. Um, so that's going to take a generation or so to sort its way out of the system. The good news is, as it had for heroin or as it had for morphine, it, at least we've substantially slowed down the new flow of people with, with the addiction. So we, you know, we, learn the, we learn the danger, the information is revealed, and doctors are much warier with this than they used to be. So that's the good side of this. The bad side is that even for the addicts, they switch from something that is less dangerous in OxyContin to something that is more dangerous in fentanyl because the legal supply has been shut down. And again, the, the common narrative is really sort of, you know, a sort of a failure of modern capital, capitalism to provide a sort of a, a good society, a just society where people can thrive. Do you have any recommendations on the demand side? So uh, sure I do, but but let me just say a few things about why I don't believe that that's right. So there is no question that physical pain, physical pain, predicted both who got the opioids initially and uh, who you know what parts of the country had it more. So the share of the population claiming disability insurance in 1990 is a very strong predictor of prescription opioid shipments 1997 to 2010. Self-reported joint prevalence, similarly a, a predictor, maybe a little bit less strong. Those things are physical pain, right? And they, they do a good job of, of uh, predicting this. But there was no massive increase in physical pain over this time period. Joint pain, uh, significant pain has been essentially flat. Injuries have been going down, right? So uh, the idea that sort of massive musculoskeletal pain increases causes isn't so. Now, that isn't the narrative that you typically hear. That narrative, you know, is at least it is, gets it right in terms of predicting where do the opioids go. The opioids do, in fact, go to people who are in physical pain. Um, but, but the despair narrative isn't just about pain. It's about no, something exactly. softer. Exactly. It's about psychology. So the despair narrative is, you know, shared, dissatisfied, or very dissatisfied with life. We see no ability of the shared, dissatisfied, or very dissatisfied with life at the local level being able to predict uh, increases in opioids between 1997 uh, and 2010. We do not think it predicts the opioid death rate once you control for these pain measures. So, um, you know, we just don't see the evidence that suggests that, you know, despair is the predictor of where the opioid addiction occurred. It's, it's driven by a, an existing well of pain in the U.S., physical pain, joints and such, and it, that combines with... Um, the, the the supply shock. Now, the despair issue is real, and I, I understand the advocates of this. And you know, I could not be the people who first pointed out the the decline in U.S. male life expectancy are economic giants. You know, Angus Deaton and Ann Case, 
great economist who I, I revere. Um, and I am not making any comments about alcohol or other reasons for this. This is specifically on opioids. And we think it is really important to focus opioids on the supply side explanation, because otherwise we're not going to learn, you know, not to make this mistake again. <laughs> but um, I, I certainly share their view that we should be taking policies to try and reduce the hardship, especially in America's eastern heartland, uh, where, you know, I, I think about, for me, when I think about sort of the despair, I think about the areas where one in four prime age men are jobless, right? Either unemployed or more often have left the labor force altogether. Or I think that the overall increase in American joblessness from 5% in 1967 to 15% over the past 10 years. Now, I, I think unquestionably we need to have policies that address that. I would, um, I would just suggest three or four, um, one of which is instead of having universal basic income, which by making not work pay more will do more to discourage work. Instead of doing that, do things that subsidize work. So if you want to boost the national minimum wage, don't do it by expecting the firms to pay for it, which will just reduce the desire to create jobs for less skilled Americans. Do it with a stronger wage subsidy where the federal government pays money so that firms will hire less skilled workers. You can target this towards areas like the Eastern Heartland where you need it. Right, areas like West Virginia, areas like Eastern Kentucky, areas like the Rust Belt. So, you know, have have subsidies that that encourage firms to create jobs, especially for less skilled workers. Um, second, we can do more to create better vocational training. So, after 20 years of being on the edges of the school reform movement, I've almost given up on the ability to have any sort of national change in school bureaucracies that are currently existing. But there's no reason why we shouldn't be experimenting with things like wraparound vocational training that is competitively sourced, that is paid for performance. Because, you know, when uh, w when you've taught someone to be a plumber, you can pretty much tell if that person has learned how to be a plumber or not. And so you can have, you know, you can have private companies, you can have unions, you can have community colleges all competing for this. And so you only get paid if someone learns how to be a computer programmer or a plumber. We can have entitlement reform that makes sure, particularly in high joblessness areas, that Policies like dis disability insurance do less to discourage non-employment, right? So DI creates a generous payment if you don't work, but then creates an income cap, which is a pretty hard cap on actually working. The work of Magnus Mogstad in Norway shows that an experiment which allowed the disabled to keep more of their earnings finds unsurprisingly that they earn more, that they work more, right? And uh, so we can do things that are more work-friendly, particularly in the high joblessness areas. And then finally, I, I never want to lose a chance to champion the need for the uh, a, a regulatory reform agenda, particularly for small businesses, particularly for the entrepreneurship of the poor. It is a crime in this country that we do so much more to regulate the entrepreneurship of the poor than we do to regulate the entrepreneurship of the rich. If you want to start your internet phenomenon in your Harvard College dorm room, there's basically no regulator looking over your shoulder until you have a billion users. Right, and have possibly influenced elections throughout the world. Right, if you want to start your grocery store ten blocks away in a poorer neighborhood, you have at least fifteen permits to get through. And so, lots of possibilities with things like one-stop permitting or doing more to apply assiduous cost-benefit analysis to the permits that already exist. But we need, particularly as America reawakens after COVID nineteen and has many businesses that have closed, we need to really make sure we're making it as easy as possible for new entrepreneurs to provide the jobs that can reinvigorate the Eastern Heartland. That's, that's great stuff. I, I'm having you on to talk about the paper, but there's no way I'm gonna let you get away without talking a bit about 
uh, about cities. You have a book coming out in September with David Cutler, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. I'm probably going to want to bring you back to talk about it. But I wonder if you could just give me a bit of a sneak preview uh, about that book, uh, especially given all the, you know, all the press about cities during the pandemic. The cities are over. People will be fleeing. What? Just give me a feel for for what what you're going to be telling readers about 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 cities and their survival uh, in this post pandemic period. So the the narrative tends to either swing forward from, uh, you know, New York is dead, cities are dead, to uh, oh it's all fine, everything is exactly the same as it did as it was before. Neither narrative is exactly right. Although it's certainly true that I am more optimistic than pessimistic about the future of cities. Uh, but the book looks through the long arc of history, and the first half of the book is specifically on health, on questions like, and my co-author David Cutler is um, a health economist, which is why we co-wrote this paper on opioids together. Um, and we asked the question, how is it that the U.S. can spend so much money on healthcare, and we end up with this kind of an outcome? <laughs> right? How is it that we can spend trillions and trillions of dollars and end up with so many Americans uh, who have died? Um, and the second half is really focused on the future of downtown, um, urban discontents, the urban problem of, of high housing costs and, and traumas over gentrification, um, and the problems with policing and uh, schools that we talked about. So our view, my view, is that while Cities are not dead. Downtowns are not dead. Offices will come back. But every city is more vulnerable than it was before. It has become easier than ever for firms and the rich to move away. And so it is vital that new cities throughout the world recognize this new, more competitive landscape and respond with better government, right? With, with better functioning cities, city governments. We also need, of course, this is a wake-up call at the national level, we also need a better national government to handle the risk of future pandemic. But at the city level, right, we need to respond to problems like the killing of George Floyd, not with slogans that make very little sense, no matter how much we understand the anger that produces them, like defund the police, with actual proposals for police reform. And what we put forward is the view that you actually need better police management. And we tell this by telling the story of Ray Kelly and then talking about the three strikes and your outlaws and, and how they what, how those change the world in some ways that are good and some ways that are bad. But the three strikes and your outlaws were also the slogans of the time period. They were fueled by understandable anger at murderers who never should have been running around in the street. But they also led to, you know, ordinary pot dealers being locked up for life, which is which is somewhat crazy. So uh, you really need public policy that's more effective, flexible organized around really making government work for, for ordinary people. In the case of police, we put forward the notion that you want a dual mandate for cops. You want to make sure that you're reducing crime, and you want to make sure that ordinary citizens are happy with the police force. Both of those things need to be measured. We currently measure one crime and not the other, and so all the attention goes on that. So we're in favor of putting in place benchmarks, including regular surveys of customers to get their satisfaction with the police, and, you know, you're going to fire police chiefs unless they deliver on the, on the dual mandate, on both consumer satisfaction, on a sense of safety uh, from police and a sense of safety from each other. Now, if you're going to ask an organization to do more, to provide both less crime and better service, you're going to have to spend more. And so this you know, need for a dual, dual mandate is going to have to come with better resources. Um, so our vision is for a government, both at the national and local level, 
that is more effective at doing the basics, that is less slogan driven, that is more driven by goals, by substance, and that understands that administration and bureaucracy are hard things. That in fact, you can't get a good healthcare system, but just, just by writing up a national insurance system that offers to pay large numbers of checks. You actually have to have a national commitment to protecting America from future pandemics. And without that, we will remain at risk uh, far into the future. And I look forward to taking a deep dive from that book uh, in the fall. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. 